order here. We'll gather together and I'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our morning that we have an opportunity to look into your word. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, as we look into it, we'd be reminded of your glorious kingdom and your promises. And that, Lord Jesus, we would be about your business until you return. We do pray, Heavenly Father, for boldness in the gospel and that you'd reinvigorate, it this, reinvigorate us this Sunday for your purposes, for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, we've gone into Revelation chapter 11. We're in verses 1 through 14. Now, I'm saying part 1 today because I know we're not going to get all the way through. We've got a lot of good data to get into. But let me just set the big picture before you. We're going to be looking at this section in Revelation where John shows us two witnesses who stand in the prophetic tradition of preaching repentance, but also they serve as an object lesson, we'll find out, much like Zerubbabel, say that five times fast, by the way, Zerubbabel, and Joshua did back in Zechariah chapter 2 through 4, because they remember object lessons that God was not done with Israel, that he was going to fulfill all of his promises. Well, these two witnesses stand in that same tradition. So not only are they symbolic, they stand as symbols showing the world that God is not done with his promises, he's not done with Israel, but they also preach repentance that all must come to Jesus Christ. I think that's inferred all in this passage. So let's begin by looking at how John was commanded by God to measure the temple. And over the years, one thing that always bothered me about this passage was there was never any dimensions given to the dimensions of the temple when he was going to measure it. Well, there's going to be a reason for that, as you will see. So let's look at the text here. This is Revelation 11, verses 1 through 2. John said, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, the measuring rod that was given to John, it's literally a reed. It comes from kalamos in Greek. And it was this reed that was very stiff, and yet it was lightweight because the stock was hollow. And so the ancients would often use that like a big ruler to measure things. Now, what you have to realize is this is going to be a symbolic act. Okay, and we're going to just flush this out, what it symbolizes. But you and I have to realize that oftentimes in the Old Testament, prophets would engage in symbolic acts. For example... Many of you have probably read Isaiah chapter 20. Do you remember what Isaiah did? Well, he went out barefoot and naked as an object lesson that there was going to be wrath and judgment from Assyria coming upon Egypt. Remember in Ezekiel chapter 12, you had Ezekiel who dug that hole in the wall and he was commanded by God to take out his luggage at night. And I always wonder, what did they have, Samsonite or what kind of luggage? (laughs) Whatever they had, he was to take that out. And it was an object lesson that Israel was going to be brought in to Babylonian captivity. Well, here we also have a very symbolic action. The measuring is symbolic. The only question is, what is it symbolic of? Well, when you look into the Old Testament, when prophets are ordered to measure something or perhaps a very important person like David, although I know he's called a prophet at times as well, when they measure something, there was really two choices. It's either a symbol of God's judgment 
or of wrath, or it's a symbol of favor. Let me give you an example. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel records that David was fighting with the Moabites. And what David did when he had taken over is he laid a bunch of the Moabites out and he measured them and then killed them. And so they were measured off as an example that these people were allotted for his judgment. And it says after that that the Moabites were subject to him. We also see the same idea in Lamentations 2. That's the book that follows, obviously, Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote it. Lamentations 2.8, you have the Lord measuring off Jerusalem for judgment. However, the vast majority of the times that we see measuring off something in the Old Testament had to do with God's favor. We're going to see that in Zechariah chapters 2, and that's, I think, the background for this text. So the background for Revelation 11, what you want to write down is it's Zechariah 2 through 4. That's the background for this passage, as you will see. Now, the other question we have to look into, and oh, by the way, let me finish this thought. When I say that the one of the images or symbols of measuring something is to show God's favor, I think that that's what's implied here. That what's being depicted is God is showing his favor upon the temple. But we have to wrestle with that. Notice it says, get up and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. One of the things we have to wrestle with is what does it mean to measure the temple specifically? Well, there's really two choices before us. Number one, some have thought that the temple represents the church. These are typically replacement theologians who see no plan for Israel, but instead the church has become Israel. Now, I have some sympathy for those who hold to this view because there are many references in the New Testament where, in fact, you see the church is referred to the temple of God. I think of the passage Bob was talking about not long ago, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Paul says, don't you know, you Corinthian believers, that you're the, what, naos, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, that brings up the idea that the temple here, notice the term temple I've highlighted red. There's two terms that could be used for temple. One is naos, which is the inner part of the temple. It would be the holy of holies and the holy place. Well, then there's another term called, it's in the Greek, heron, and that would be the whole temple complex, the wider courts, etc., all combined. Is everybody with me? Well, here it's naos, and so it would be the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, I mention that because, again, Paul says, don't you know that you are the temple, naos, the holy of holies, of where the Holy Spirit dwells? That's what he's saying. So I have some sympathy for those who hold to this view. Now, what's the problem with this view? That, in fact, when he's measuring the temple, the temple is really the church of God. Well, notice right away, he says, not only is he to measure the temple of God, but also the altar and those who worship in it. So if the temple is the church, what are those who worship in it? What are they, just fodder? (laughs) Right? So all of a sudden, now you've got the temple, which symbolizes the church, and then the people who worship in it are who? Whom? (laughs) What's more, notice in verse 2, very important, he says, leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. The term nations there, ethnos, can be rendered Gentiles. Well, if this is in fact the temple that represents the church, well then Gentiles are excluded from the church? Does anyone see a problem with that? I thought that the Gentiles were fully included in the church. 
Wasn't that a big issue? In the New Testament, of course it was. And so certainly that is not a good rendering then of what it means to measure the temple. And so the second option, I think, is obviously the preferred one, and that is the temple presents, excuse me, represents a real future temple. The future temple that was prophesied in Daniel 7.25, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 12.7, Daniel 12.11, all alluded to, and we'll be looking at these references, we see the same temple being promised by Paul. We'll look at that in the next slide, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. We see the same temple alluded to in Revelation chapter 13. And so this future temple is a temple that will literally be built, I believe, in the 70th week of Daniel by the Jews. And in fact, I think what God is saying here is that it once again has his favor because he's turning his attention once again to the people of Israel. Now we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But let's look at um, some of these passages. Before we look them up, though, one thing I want to mention again is that there are no dimensions given when John measures the temple. He never gives any dimensions, and that always bothered me for years as believers. Where are the dimensions? He measures it. How many feet is the thing, right? Well, he never gives you any. And the question again is why? Well, we talked about it. It's symbolic. Now, what's very interesting is there's two references in the Old Testament where God has his prophet measure the temple very specifically. One is Ezekiel chapter 40, really all the way through Ezekiel 45. Now, what's very interesting is when God has Ezekiel measure the temple there, he gives measurements. Okay, now why is that important? Because he's really measuring the temple. It's not symbolic. He's literally measuring a literal temple that will exist, I believe, in the millennial kingdom. But what's very interesting is in Zechariah chapter 2, and again, I'm contending that that's the background for all of Revelation 11, is when Zechariah was commanded to measure the temple, he never gives any dimensions either. Now, why is that important? Because in Zechariah 2, the big theme is that God has his favor returning to the Jews. Remember, he's bringing them from Babylonian captivity. So I want you to think about Zechariah 2, God is bringing the people of Israel out of Babylonian captivity, and he's taking his people out of Babylon. Think of that. What's happening in the 70th week of Daniel? Well, he's going to take his people and protect them from Babylon, and his favor is once again returning to the Jews. I think that that's the common thread. So let me show you evidence of this. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And again, what I'm showing you is that this was a foreshadowing of what's occurring here now in Revelation 11. It's the same idea. I think certainly John's alluding to it. Again, Zechariah chapter 2, we'll look at the first seven verses. Notice here in verse 1, Zechariah says, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, now let me just stop there. And notice at the end of verse 2, he's going to measure Jerusalem. But what's very interesting is when you keep reading all the way through Zechariah, I kept looking and kept looking, there's never any measurements given. And so it was the same question. Well, why are there never any dimensions given? You want to measure it. Well, it's obviously not the point. It's a symbolic act. How do we know that? Well, look at the evidence from the text. Verse 3, it says, And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, 
And another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem, listen to the promise, will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. Notice verse 5, For I, declares Yahweh, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Stop there. What God is saying is he's going to protect them. His favor has returned upon them. They were in the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, but the symbolic act of measuring Jerusalem shows that God's favor has once again returned. And so that is precisely what John is borrowing from. Precisely. And I'll show you evidence of that when we get into Zechariah 4 as well. So the imagery then, I think here, is that once again, God is going to protect his people even during the midst of the Great Tribulation. And we'll see evidence of that. Now, let's just finish reading those. Zechariah, we're in 2.6. He says, Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares Yahweh, for I have dispersed you, that's Israel, as the four winds of the heavens, declares Yahweh. Ho Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. Now, what's very interesting as we get into the later chapters of Revelation, we're going to see that there's a Babylon that exists in John in John's vision, isn't there? In the future 70th week of Daniel. And again, the battle is against Babylon. The people of God are to escape and they are to repent and come to Christ. The same issue back then. So do you see the similarities? Taking the people out of Babylon in Zechariah's day, protecting the people of God from Babylon in John's day. God's favor returned to the temple and the people of Israel in Zechariah's day. The same thing is occurring again, in the future 70th week of Daniel. I think that that's the imagery. Now, one other thing I want to point out is notice here in verse 2, he says, leave out the court which is outside the temple. The court that's outside the temple would be the temple precincts, which would contain the court of the Gentiles. And so here the Gentiles are being excluded. And I think that that further shows the Jewish nature of this, okay? Because the Gentiles that apparently are trampling Jerusalem are pagan in nature, In fact, notice he says, for it has been given to the nations, that's the Gentiles, and they will tread it underfoot, the holy city, for what? For 42 months. Now, the 42 months, how long is that? Well, that's three and a half years. Now, how long is the great tribulation period that the Antichrist was going to reign? Well, it's for three and a half years. Okay, now, what I want to do is unpack some of this from the Old Testament. Turn your Bibles to Daniel 7, Daniel 7.25 specifically. We'll look through verse 26. And I want you to see how many times this three and a half year, 42 months, time, times, and half a time, it's said different ways, but it's three and a half years is referenced. And it's constantly a reference to the time period in which this Antichrist future is going to blaspheme God and wear down the saints. Daniel 7.25. Talking about this future Antichrist, notice Daniel says he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. So stop there. Notice two things. There's blasphemy against Yahweh and what? The killing and the wearing down of his people is implied. So it's both and. It says, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. Now when he says that, stop there for a moment. The implication is that you're going to have religious liberties taken away. The Jews will be engaged in some form of temple worship here. 
in the future, and it's going to be taken away. That's what dictators do. Think about it. Isn't that what Antiochus Epiphanes IV did? Yes. We know that Nero did it. Domitian did it. Hitler did it. Stalin did it. That's what dictators do. They take away the people of God's ability to worship. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the future again, ultimately under this Antichrist. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Oops, well, we got to get it. That way it can be held against you in the court of right. law. Right, yeah. yeah. But um, I, because you brought up this verse, I just wanted to interject here because, not that I agree with it, but the Seventh-day Adventists hold that the law will change it so that it will be illegal to worship on Saturday and it's mandatory to work on worship on Sunday. So that, to them, is their test. That's the mark of the beast. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I don't know how they would read that into it. It doesn't specify that. So they're simply... You know, it's Bob and I were one day doing a radio. It's funny, Luann, you mentioned this. One concept that Bob and I continuously see is when you have something that's ambiguous, false teachers like to pour information into it that isn't there. So it, it's certainly there's going to be alterations made to the law, but we don't know what that means. It's not specified. So it isn't an interesting that they all of a sudden have revelation where they specify exactly what it is. All we can say very generally is that there's some sort of alterations made. But they take that ambiguity, ambiguity and they try to make more specificity than is warranted. So, yeah, that would be an improper reading of the text. So, yeah, thank you for pointing that out, though. Very good. So, yeah, if you had someone said from this text that, by the way, this means that there's going to be a change of Sabbath. Well, first of all, our Sabbath rest is found in Christ. We know that. I think we've been taught on that well. But the other issue here is, well, where do you get that from the text? Okay, it, it's not that specific. So always go back to the text and ask, does it really give that level of specificity? Okay, now notice also that it, it keeps going. It says, Nero, or excuse me, I was, well, here it is. They will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Does everyone see that in verse 25 at the end? Now, time, times, and half a time is three and a half. And what you'll find out in the book of Daniel is he's dealing with years. That's three and a half years. And I'll show you that from Daniel 9. Okay, so three and a half years. We'll notice the connection to the 42 months. So you see the connection that within this last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, there's going to be a great tribulation. You're going to have an antichrist who's going to wear down the people of God. And yet here in the midst of it, in Revelation 11, God is promising that his favor remains with the temple and with the people of God. Okay, now we're going to talk about how this ties into all of Israel being saved and that they're going to come to faith in a little bit. But let's keep going. It says in verse 26, but the, this is Daniel 7, 26, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. What's very interesting is the Antichrist, whenever he's mentioned in the book of Revelation, his future is always given as well. And he's always going to be destroyed. Okay, so when every time God mentions him, his future destruction is always mentioned as well. Yeah, Eric. I, I just want to state the obvious so that we really know where, where, when this is. This is the second half of the tribulation. Yes. Um, my feeling is that the believers will have, we will be with Christ. Absolutely. But there will be tribulation saints exactly. that will be worn down. And then, of course, the ending comes right here. Okay. Absolutely. Good. I got that then. Good. Well said. You got it. And, you know, some of it is as a result, more than likely, of the 144,000. I'm surmising that. 
but I would imagine that the 144,000 that were sealed by God, they were Jews, and that they would have some sort of evangelistic out, outreach, I would imagine. Um, the text doesn't specifically say that, but I would imagine that would occur. So, yeah, I think that that's uh, exactly right. So, well said. Now, turn your Bibles ahead to Daniel 9, verse 27. Daniel 9, 27. And what I want to show you in Daniel 9.27 is, again, you see this three-and-a-half-year idea that there's going to be the last three-and-a-half years is going to be this reign of Antichrist. Notice in 27 it says, and he, and by the way, let's stop there for just a moment. The he here is Antichrist, not Christ. Okay, now why do we know that? Well, not only because of the context, the nearest antecedent is a reference to the ruler of the people. Okay, but we also know because it's going to build off of Daniel 7.25. Now, why do I say that? Because some theologians want to make the he Christ and not Antichrist. Well, let me ask the question before we go any further. I think you know where this text goes. When did Christ ever make a seven-year covenant with anybody and then in the middle of it alter it or make changes to it? Well, he never did that. In fact, we have what's called the eternal covenant the new covenant, right? So it doesn't make any sense. So I just want you to know that the he here is Antichrist, it's not Christ. It says he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Now stop there. One week. Aha, people will say. You can't take that literally. One week is only seven days. And they'll say, for crying out loud, you read into this, Eric, you're seven years. Well, hold on there, sister, right? Let's stop just a moment. First of all, the term for week in Hebrew is a term for seven. So it's literally one seven. Now, how do we know that Daniel is using years as his denomination? In other words, it's seven something, seven days, seven weeks, seven hours. How do we know he's using seven years? Well, turn your Bibles very quickly to Jeremiah 25, 11. Jeremiah 25, 11. In fact, could somebody read that? I don't have that on my notes and I don't have uh, my Bible open to that. Here I could probably. I got it. Oh, you got it. Thanks, Bob. Jeremiah twenty-five, eleven. Okay. This whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for seventy years. Wow. So, everybody hear that? How long, according to the prophet Jeremiah? Was Israel going to be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years? 70, yeah. Okay, so 70 years. Now, turn your Bibles to Daniel 9, 2, and I'll show you that that's exactly what Daniel is building off of. He was aware of Jeremiah's prophecy, and that's why we know that the 1 7 is seven years, not seven days, seven weeks, seven months. It's years he's dealing with. Daniel 9, 2, is everyone there? Daniel 9, 2, notice he says, in the first year of his reign, that's the reign of Darius. He says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of years, everyone see that? According to the word of Yahweh given to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So does everyone see that the denomination then in play is years? So when a Reformed theologian or someone, and by the way, we have a lot of affinity with Reformed theologians, but oftentimes when I'm in debates with them, they'll say, well, you're just making up the seven years. Nowhere does in the text does it say that Daniel's using years. Well, there we, we have it. That's the anticipation from Daniel 9-2. Okay, so the seven, the one seven, the week is a week of years. It's seven years. 
So this Antichrist is going to make a covenant. Here's how I think it'll play out. I think it begins at the inception of Daniel's 70th week, and it may even, and this is just a hypothesis, perhaps it would tie into the building of the temple. Remember, there's no precursor that must occur prior to the coming of the Messiah for his people to rapture us. So perhaps one of the agreements when the Antichrist comes to power is that the Jews would be allowed to build their temple. Well, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he takes over the temple, and he sets himself up to be God. Okay, that's what we're going to see. Notice he says, but in the middle of the, the week, the seven, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. There's a change in the law. All right, now, what's the middle of the seven? Well, that'd be three and a half years. Well, what do we have here? For it has been given to the Gentiles that they will tread underfoot for 42 months for three and a half years. So it's the same data. Okay, now, he, he keeps going. He says that this will be until the abominations will come on the one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction... There's the mention of the destruction of the Antichrist again. He's mentioned. What's going to happen to him? Destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Every time the Antichrist is mentioned, his destruction seems to be right after. Okay? God does that, I think, almost unanimously through the scriptures. All right, turn ahead again to Daniel 12:7. And by the way, this is why this is part one of Revelation 11. <laughs> We've got a lot of data to look into. Daniel 12:7. We'll turn there, and I'll show you again the time, times, and half a time. Daniel 12, 7, Daniel says, I heard the man dressed in linen, this was an angel, who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever, that's, that's God, that it would be, this is the time of the end, for a time, times, and half a time. Now stop there. A time would be a year. Times would be two. We have three. And then what does it say? Half a time. So you have three and a half years. Okay, so that's the same, again, as the 42 months or 1,260 days. It's the same time period. It says, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these things will be completed. Now notice the reference to finish shattering the power of the holy people. Doesn't it say that the nations will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months? So again, you see the correspondence. All right? Now, one more text. This is in Revelation Turn ahead to Revelation 13, verses 4 through 5. Let me show you another reference. Again, Revelation 13, verses 4 through 5. Notice here, Revelation 13, verses 4 through 5. It says, They worship the dragon. Who's the dragon? That's Satan. Because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? Verse 5, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Isn't that what Daniel 7.25 said he would do? Exactly. And authority he had to act for 42 months was given to him. Again, that's the same 42 months that we see here. Is everyone with me now? So for 42 months, for the last three and a half years, the temple is going to be trodden down by the Gentiles. But I think the imagery here is that God's favor is still with it. Because why? He's a God who keeps his promises. Amen. He promised that one day Israel would be restored. The kingdom, by the way, isn't coming to Minnesota. The kingdom is going to be worldwide. But the headquarters is going to be in Israel. And that's why people say, well, why do you keep talking about Israel here when in fact God is saving people in the church? Dear ones, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. On the one hand, yes, there are many references 
in the New Testament where we see that if you're going to be a partaker of this coming kingdom, you better be a member of the church. And how do you become a member of the church? By believing in Jesus Christ. By the way, I'm not talking about membership in this church specifically. I'm talking about becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said in Romans 2, 20 through 29, that a Jew is not one who was one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, who is a true Jew? One who has circumcision of the heart, one who's been regenerated and therefore has come to faith in Messiah. So that's a true Jew. In 1 Peter, we see that he refers to the enemies of God and unbelievers as Gentiles. Well, why would he say that? Well, because in a sense, the church is the new Israel of God, in a sense. But just because it's used as a metaphor does not mean that there isn't a literal promise to a literal Israel. There is. And we have to be able to hold on to that. In fact, we'll turn in a little bit to Romans eleven twenty six, where God says through the Apostle Paul, that one day all Israel will be saved. And the Israel he's referring to is ethnic Israel. All Israel will one day be saved. We have to affirm that as well. So yes, on the one hand, if you're going to be a partaker of this kingdom that's coming, you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, the kingdom isn't coming to the Gentile nations. It's going to be headquartered in Israel. God is going to reign over the whole world, but his headquarters is Israel. Okay, now let's look at Paul's reference here to the future temple. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the day of the Lord. So those at Thessalonica, they thought that they were living inside the day of the Lord. All right, now, what's very interesting is we have a little bit of a problem here. Notice where it says, For it will not come unless... That's, I put it in italicized because that's inserted by our English translators. But notice the logic of the text begins up here. He says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. One verse earlier, he talks about that they were worried that the day of the Lord had already come, that it was present. Is everyone with me? Well, then the logic of the text is not that it will not come, but the logic is literally, well, it's not here. Okay, everyone, turn your Bibles. Let me open this up here. One verse earlier, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. I want to make sure everybody's on the same page with me here. In fact, let me just begin the very beginning, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the, the day of the Lord has come. Does everyone see has come? The verb is anastaken. It literally means present. In fact, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians for this present distress. How should it be rendered? Present. Okay? Now, the logic from the text then, he says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. Notice the future orientation. That's supplied by the English translator. But the logic from the Greek text is not that it will not come, but that it's not here. The, the people in Thessalonica thought they were living in the day of the Lord. Okay, they, they missed the rapture. So Paul can't say, well, of course you didn't miss the rapture because you didn't miss the rapture. Well, that is, it's like when my little boy says, why does the sky look blue? And I say, well, because it looks blue. Okay, it's a tautology. It doesn't add anything to the argument. So they thought that they were living in it. The reason I'm laboring this point is Paul is not saying this will come before. He's saying this is the first thing within the 70th week of Daniel. 
It's not a precursor before. It is the first thing within. What is it? It's the apostasy comes first. That's the falling away of the entire world to give their allegiance to whom? To Antichrist for the seven years, right? And it says, then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, notice verse 4. Some have suggested verse 4 is where the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is first revealed. Okay, is everyone with me? They'll say verse 4 shows when he's revealed. It's when he exalts himself in the temple. That's at the three and a half year mark. Uh, That's not correct. Verse 4 is what's called an appositional phrase. If I said Bob DeWay, comma, a friend of mine and a fellow pastor at Gospel of Grace, comma, is going to a conference. Between the commas is an appositional phrase further describing who Bob is. That's exactly what's going on in verse 4. There's not a timing indicator. What Paul is simply saying is, who is this man of lawlessness? Well, he's the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that, here's the purpose, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Okay, so that's exactly what's going to happen in the future temple. Now, let me ask the question, has this ever happened in history after Paul wrote this? No. Yes, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, around 167 B.C., certainly desecrated the temple and set himself up, but Paul wrote after that. Now, did the Romans ever set someone up in the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place in order to claim to be God? No. They merely destroyed it under Titus, and it was wiped out. So this has never occurred in history. It certainly never occurred yet during the church age. So we should therefore expect that this future temple is exactly what John's writing about in Revelation 11, and it must be within what? The 70th week of Daniel. Does everyone see the logic? If it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen in the future. Okay? All right, now let's keep moving then. Now come two witnesses. And again, my contention is are these witnesses are much like Zerubbabel and Joshua from Zechariah 4. That's the background. Let's read. Revelation 11, 3 through 4, he says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, first of all, let's ask the question, God is bringing forth two witnesses And one of the things we should ask is, well, why? Why does he need two witnesses? Well, one of the reasons why is because, remember in Deuteronomy 19.15, God establishes all things through the mouth of what? Two witnesses. So even at the very end, in the 70th week of Daniel, he's going to have two witnesses that are proclaiming his truth. Whatever whatever their preaching entails, I would imagine it would entail the the need to come to Christ, etc., Okay, so he has two witnesses establishing. Now, the other question is, well, who are these two witnesses? And at the very beginning of church history, and I'm talking like third century, etc., we had Irenaeus, Tertullian, and some others that believed that these two witnesses were Enoch and Elijah. Now, does anybody know why they thought that they would be Enoch and Elijah? They didn't die. Exactly. Now, what, what's the rub? What does it say in Hebrews 9.27? It says it's appointed once for a man to die, then after that comes judgment. So what Tertullian and Irenaeus reasoned was, well, if you have to die physically, well, 
these two have to come back and they're going to be the witnesses and then they're going to die because the Antichrist will put them to death. That was, that was their logic. And it's, it's good reasoning. All right. Now, what's interesting, though, is when we go on into verses 5 through 6 of chapter 11 right here in, in Revelation 11, you're going to see that the miracles that these two witnesses engage in have much more in keeping with Moses and Elijah. Moses was able to smite the land with plagues. So can this witness. Elijah could shut the heavens from raining. So could one of these witnesses. So the witnesses are far more in keeping with Moses and Elijah than Enoch and Elijah. Now, here's my personal preference. I think that they're going to be men like Moses and like Elijah. I don't think we have to say that they are Moses and Elijah. I don't think we have to be dogmatic. Just as John the Baptist, Jesus could say that he was Elijah. He was a type. In the same way, I think we can say that these were types as well. Okay? There was types in the past. There's types in the future. All right? Does that, does that make sense? Now, if they're literally Moses and Elijah, that's, that's perfectly, you know, it could, it could happen. I won't part company with you on that. I don't know. But I'm, I'm merely giving you a hypothesis. I think there will be two that are like them. All right? Now, notice it says that they were going to prophesy. Now, what does it mean to prophesy? Here's the definition that I want you to consider of prophecy. Always think of two elements. In the prophets of old, the prophets would do two things. They would foretell and they would foretell. Okay, so what is prophecy? It's foretelling and it's foretelling. First of all, foretelling. Foretelling is where the prophet of God would tell the people to repent and return to Yahweh, to covenant faithfulness. It was the gospel, the good news, that in Yahweh there could be life and life eternal. That's foretelling. And that's the majority of prophecy that we see in the Old Testament. It is calling the people of God back from apostasy or it's calling people to believe. That's foretelling. But there's also a foretelling element to prophecy, and that's predicting the future. And God has declared that. He says, do I do anything except that I've announced it to my prophets ahead of time? And, of course, the answer is no. He does announce it through his prophets. Okay? So that's foretelling and foretelling. Now, one thing I want you to understand is that Jesus and his testimony in the book of Revelation is the source of prophecy. Prophecy is about who he is and what he does. So Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is not only the source, he's the one who gives the prophetic word to John, but he's what the prophecy is about. And I want you to see evidence of that. Turn your Bibles, first of all, to Revelation 1, 1 through 2. I've got to turn my Bible, too, to that. Revelation 1, 1 through 2. Notice John in the beginning said, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So who is the source of revelation? Well, God is. Gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. Now, stop there. I know I've mentioned this a hundred times, but there's always new people. Remember that phrase. He's going to show him the things that must take place soon taken word for word from Daniel 2.28, the Septuagint. Daniel in 2.28 is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, these are the things that must take place in the last days. Now John builds right off of that. He says, these are the things that must take place soon. 
The only change in the text is Daniel says in the last days. John says soon. Why? Because we're in the last days. And therefore, it's an imminent proposition. Is everyone with me? But notice here, he keeps going. He says, he made it known. So God revealed this by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness, Marturion, he's the witness, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Notice in this text, these two verses, Jesus is the source of revelation. The revelation proceeds from him, but he's also what the revelation is about. Okay? Now, turn ahead to Revelation 19.10. This is where, remember, John wants to bow down and worship this angel. And what's very interesting is you're going to see, again, Revelation 19.10, the angel is going to tell him, well, don't worship me. I'm not the source of the revelation God is. Worship him. Notice what he says. Revelation 19.10, Then I, that's John, fell at his feet to worship him, but he's an angel. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Stop there. Why should we worship God? Well, he's the source, not the angel. He says, For, here's the reason, Hati, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what's the spirit of prophecy? It's the testimony of Christ. He's the source of all prophecy, and he's, at the end, what it's all about. Yes, Bob? So you're saying it's a plenary genitive? Plenary genitive, exactly. I was wondering. Yep. Uh, just for, so uh, let me unpack. <laughs> Most of you, uh, let me explain what Bob and I are talking about. The, um, there's two different genitive constructions. Genitive in Greek, uh, there's different cases in Greek. There's a vocative case. It's the case of address. Okay, um, sir, lord, you might call people. That's vocative. There's the nominative case. It's the case that the subject is in, typically. Then you have the accusative case. That's the case that the direct object is in. You have the dative case, that's the indirect object. And then you have the genitive case, which is the case of possession. What Bob and I are wrestling with oftentimes is whether something is what's called a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. Subjective genitive would mean that Christ is the subject and he is the source, therefore, of the revelation. Is everyone with me? But if it's an objective genitive, then the revelation is about him. He's the object, okay? What Bob and I are concluding is that it's more than likely plenary. It's both. Neither are, it's both and. Okay, he's both the source and what it's all about. I think that that's inferred in these various texts. Okay, now, why is that important? Because I'm trying to define what are they prophesying? What are they saying? Well, in the book of Revelation, it must be about Christ. That's what I'm trying to show you. Okay, so I don't think that this is, let's, um, let's return back to the Mosaic Covenant. I don't think that that's the prophecy here. Although it seems like they have some of those things going on within the temple, certainly. But I think the prophecy in the book of Revelation is about Christ. So that's what they're doing. That's what I'm trying to define. Is everyone with me? Okay. Now, let's keep moving here for the sake of time. I know I've got a lot of data here for you. Um, oh, one other prophecy I want you to see or passage. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. Could somebody read that for me? Brian, do you have your mic? First uh, Peter 1, 10 through 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, 
seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Do you notice the spirit of Christ, he says, was giving this information to the prophets? The spirit of Christ is synonymous with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, the reason why the Holy Spirit is often linked to Christ is because Christ at his first advent was the one who bestows and gives, as it says in Acts 2.33, the Spirit. So the new covenant is the age in which the Holy Spirit would be dispensed. And the Holy Spirit's role, as Bob gave a wonderful series on, the role of the Holy Spirit is what? To bring confession of Christ. So the Holy Spirit works through the Word. So if you hear someone saying, well, I'm prophesying, and I'm doing a work of the Spirit, but they're not bringing you to Christ? Well, it's not a work of the Spirit. Because the Spirit of Christ brings about the testimony of Christ. Is everyone with me? That's a work of the Spirit. So I just want to unload that. that I, that's what I think they're doing here. The prophesying is all about Jesus. Okay, now notice here also where it says, these are two olive trees. The are, we know from Revelation 1.20, really means they represent... Okay, it's a form of amy, it's I am. But the reason I say that is, remember in Revelation 1.20, I think it's 1.20. Let me just look here and make sure I'm not... Yeah, it's Revelation 1.20. This is where, remember, the, the writer John says that these stars are the seven angels. Okay, literally he says they represent the seven angels. Okay, so in the same way, he's saying these represent the two olive trees. Now, why are the, tree, the two olive trees important? Well, notice what it says here back in Zechariah 4, 2 through 3. This is the background. He said to me, this is God saying this to Zechariah, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Now stop there for just a moment. When you look at all of this, the lampstand represents the Spirit. That's why there's seven of them. It represents the fullness of God. But the two olive trees are going to be drawing from the oil. And the idea is, and this is you see this in Zechariah 4, 6, where God says, not by your might nor by power, but by my Spirit. These two olive trees function off of the Spirit of God. Okay? Now, he keeps going. He says, and the two olive trees by it, and on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Well, who are they? They're Zerubbabel and Joshua. And in Zerubbabel's day, we're talking about 538 B.C., these are the two who are going to help what? Restore Israel. Joshua and Zerubbabel. Well, notice you have two olive trees again. Just when God said he was going to reestablish Israel, sure enough, you have two that are functioning like Zerubbabel and Joshua. Why? Because God is not done with Israel. There's a day that's coming when he's going to restore all things. And isn't it interesting that that's one of the ministries of the future Elijah? He was to come to restore all things. How many times have you guys heard that phrase in Scripture? What does it mean to restore all things? It's not simply that we have the first advent of Christ, but I think implied in the restoration of all things is the second advent as well. The kingdom, the resurrection, reigning with Christ, universal peace, all of those are true as well. Now, let me talk about this idea of restoration of all things because that's what these two witnesses are coming to do. One of them, again, in the image 
of Elijah. Turn your Bibles to Malachi 4, 5 through 6. There's a lot of background to these passages. That's why I want to spend some time here. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. What I want to show you, again, Malachi 4, 5 through 6, let's look at what Elijah was to do when he would come. Now, John the Baptist, we know he came to prepare the hearts of the people. But Jesus left it open, as I'll show you in Matthew 17, for there to be a future occurrence of Elijah coming to restore all things. So notice what it says, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. It says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Stop there. Who's going to come before the great and terrible day of Yahweh? Elijah is. Now, the term or phrase, great and terrible day of Yahweh, only occurs twice in our Bible. It occurs once here in Malachi 4.5, and again in Joel, I think it's 2.31. Okay, so what's very interesting is when we unpack what the terrible day of Yahweh is, in fact, he says the coming of the great and terrible day, it ends up being the very 24-hour period when the Messiah returns. Okay, in other words, it's not a precursor prior to the 70th week, and I've laid this out in other eschatological uh, messages that I've given. The great and terrible day of Yahweh, in context in Joel, shows you that it's when Yahweh brings all of his enemies into the valley of Jehoshaphat, where he's going to judge them. Well, that happens on the last day, when the Messiah returns at the end of the 70th week and destroys his enemies. So that's what that's referring to. So before that last day... Notice it says in verse 6, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now stop there. What in the world does it mean to restore the father's heart to the children's and vice versa? Well, in the context of Malachi, what he's referring to is not just simply that one day the children won't be abusive to their parents, although that certainly would be implied. That's an obvious given if righteousness reigns. And it's also, I don't think he's alluding to the fact that fathers will one day not provoke their children to anger. Although, again, if righteousness reigns, that would be implied. But what Malachi is getting at is that one day the children of Israel are going to return to the covenant, to Yahweh, to their fathers, uh, that, the, that their fathers held to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. I think that that's the intended meaning. Now, how do we know that? Well, notice earlier what he says. In fact, I have to grab my Bible here again. Notice Malachi 2.10 and Malachi 3.4. Let's look at those. This is how we know that he's not talking about earthly fathers and sons, as it were. He's talking more patriarchs, exactly. Malachi 2.10. Notice Judah here would profane the covenant, and Malachi writes this. This is Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning what? The covenant of our fathers. Well, who are the fathers? It's the patriarch. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, turn ahead to 3.4. 3, 4, it says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh as in the days of old, as in former years. Just as in the days of the fathers, I think is the implication. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So one of the things that's going to occur 
through Elijah is he's going to restore the children of Israel to have a faith like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when we look at, for example, in Romans eleven twenty six, where it says all Israel will be saved, where it says in Zechariah twelve ten that they'll look upon me whom they pierced and they'll mourn for him as they mourn for an only child, that's how it's going to occur. It's going to occur through biblical preaching even of these two witnesses. The Elijah is coming to restore all things. And notice the, the purpose statement at the very end of verse 6 of Malachi 4. It says, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Malachi is the last book in our Old Testament that it ends with curse, the term curse. Some believe that that's why the Jews end their canon in Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles are the last book in the Jewish canon. Some think, I don't know if we could ever prove it, it's because Malachi, even though they knew he was the last prophet, they didn't want to end their canon with the term curse. But notice, that's the great promise. The restoration so there's no longer a curse. Israel's going to be restored. That's what this whole text is talking about. And so you and I have to be the astute reader and say, look, John is certainly borrowing from Zechariah. And the Zechariah issue was Zerubbabel and Joshua, are two lampstands or two olive trees, rather, who are a symbol of God's favor upon the land of Israel and upon its people once again. That's wonderful. Because, brothers and sisters, the hope for Israel is our hope, too. That's our kingdom, too. People say, well, you're applying it to Israel. It doesn't apply to us. How does it not apply to us? Is anyone excited to be part of a kingdom? I am. I'm sick of the democracies at this time. (laughs) You see, the wonderful thing about a kingdom is that what the king says goes. The problem with humanity is we're all fallen, and then you end up with bad kings. Israel wanted a king. What was the problem? They got bad kings. Well, there's a day that's coming where the king of kings is coming. And you're going to have a righteous rule. And he's coming for his people. And we're going to have a kingdom. And I'm excited about it. I'm sick of democracies. By the way, in the Middle East, just an aside, you'll see a lot of politicians say, we want democracy in the Mideast. No, you don't, because they'll just vote in a jihadist. What we want in the Mideast is liberty. The only way you can have liberty is when the Prince of Peace comes, the King of Kings. And that's all tied into the restoration of all things. Now, turn ahead to Matthew 17, 10 through 13. This is right after the transfiguration. Who was up on the mountain of transfiguration with Christ? Moses and Elijah. Matthew 17, 10 through 13. I want to show you that Jesus leaves it open for a future return of Elijah. Matthew 17, 10 through 13. His disciples asked him, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That is the divine necessity. And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. Now stop there. The construction in Greek is what's called a men day construction. If you're to transliterate it, it's M-E-N. That begins one part of the sentence, dot, 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 D-E. Mende. Now, what Bob and I learned when we were learning Greek, it's one of the first constructions you learn. It's called on the one hand, but on the other. So when you're reading this text, and when you see it in Greek, you say, on the one hand, but on the other. So it's not that either isn't true. It's that they're both true. Okay, so it's not binary. It's not either or. It's both and. Is everyone with me? So on the one hand, yes, there's an Elijah that's coming to restore all things in the future. But on the other hand, he's already come. If you can bear it, that is John the Baptist. He says, but I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but they did whatever they wished. 
so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So you see, on the one hand, Elijah's coming in the future. That's not negated by Christ. But on the other hand, in a sense, he already came. So there's a twofold coming of Elijah. When you read the Old Testament, you'd swear that there's only one advent of Jesus Christ. But in reality, there was two. And Peter finally knew that, didn't he? He said, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I believe he says that in 1 Peter 1. He finally got his theology right. Right? Okay. So there's this restoration of all things. Now, one more passage, Acts 3, 19 through 21. I want to just show you one more that has to do with the restoration of all things because that's what Elijah came to do. That's what these two witnesses are doing. Acts 3, 19 through 21. This is sermon at Pentecost. Listen to what Peter says. This is Acts 3, 19 through 21. After he preaches who Christ is, what he did, the fact that he's been raised, what does he say? He says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Again, stop there. Why would our repentance be a determining factor of when God sends Christ? Because the idea of filling up. There's only a so, so many of the elect that are going to be, or I shouldn't say so many of the elect. There are so many people who are elect, and once they have filled, that bucket is filled, Jesus comes. Now, do you and I know when the last person saved is coming? No. But Peter's preaching. That's why he says repent. Why? Because you're filling up the bucket, and God's going to send Jesus. So when you repent and came to Christ, you're filling up the totality of what God is doing, and he's going to send Jesus. So he keeps going here. Verse 21, he says, Whom heaven must receive, that's Jesus, until what? The period of the restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. The restoration of all things incorporates Israel, as we see in Malachi 4, 5 through 6. It's a kingdom that's coming. Righteousness is coming. Worldwide rule of God is coming. And so these two witnesses are coming, one of them in the spirit of Elijah, to do that very thing. They're going to restore the people of Israel back to the Messiah. And they're going to be a people who will honor God in both their deeds and in their doctrine. This is why, again, in Zechariah 12, Zechariah foresaw the day where it says, they'll look upon me whom they've pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. That's going to happen in Daniel's 70th week. Okay, now how much time do we have? I think we're out of time. One more thing I just want you to see. We have one more minute. Turn, uh, I need somebody to read something, I think, here. I just want you to see, notice this phrase, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. What's very interesting is that comes right from Zechariah 4, 12 through 14. Could somebody read that and that'll be our closing? Brian, do you have that? Zechariah chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. I just want to show you as we leave the door that for sure John is borrowing from Zechariah, further evidence. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? Okay, stop right there. So notice they're draining the oil. That's the spirit. That's where they're getting their power. Zechariah 4, 6, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit. That's how it's all going to come out. It's God's work. Not Now, notice also the reference to the olive trees. 
Okay, the two olive trees is asking, who are they? Well, that's exactly what John's talking about. Okay, keep going. So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Notice in the underlying portion, it's an identical phrase. Certainly what John wants us to see, that is just in Zerubbabel and Joshua's day, God's favor returned to Israel at the end of Daniel's 70th week. His, re- his favor is returning to Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is glorious because that's our kingdom too. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for fulfilled prophecy that one day you will come and restore all things, that you haven't left us to be a people without a home, that you're going to bring us a glorious kingdom, and that you're going to be faithful to all of the promises that you've given. We thank you for that. We thank you for the majest- magic- majestic nature of your word, And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we look at these things, we'd be convinced that, yes, we can know the truth, that these things have not occurred in the past, but they are future glorious events that will occur because because you're a God who fulfills your promises. And we thank you so much for that. I pray if anyone does not know you, today would be their day to repent as well and come to you, the giver of all life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.